<clears throat> hear about it from a few people, so congrats. Although, this is what's nice about living in Kansas City, is there's no purple because everybody's forgotten about last night because all we care about today is the red, right? So, thank you for, most of you, for wearing your chief stuff, even if you slipped on a K-State, something rather to go with that, so... Uh, normally, I, I've always told people in the past, if OU loses a game, you probably won't see or hear from me for about three or four days. Don't worry about it. I'm just off wandering around in the desert, muttering to myself. Um, but Brad did tell me he wasn't going to be here this morning. So, And then he showed up. So, um, yeah. Anyway, um, I did want to, to say this because, you know, Brad at the 8 o'clock service had a little jab about me. He probably will when he does announcements here in a little bit too. He's not going to get to watch the Chiefs game live, so make sure you're texting him updates all afternoon long, okay? <laughs> He's going to want to know those and hear those. Uh, even if you're not watching the game, go ahead and text him what you think is happening in the game. So, But, but seriously, I don't even know why we're talking about football because it's the stretch run of baseball season. I mean, you know, Albert Pujols hit... 699 and 700th career home runs this week. I got to watch that uh, the other night. I think it was Friday night on TV. That was, was pretty cool. And, and I'm a little bit more of a baseball guy anyway. I've always loved baseball. I love stats with baseball. I love the, the numbers that come with baseball. They're numbers that stick in our heads a little bit more than other sports. Uh, like as a kid, I can remember, you know, the 61 home runs of Roger Maris, and then it became 70, and then 73, and uh, the career home run marks, and, you know, we talk about a 400 batting average as being this incredible, you know, bar to, to, to pass, or 3,000 hits. Like, it has these big, bold numbers that we always focus on and fixate on. Baseball's a game about the statistics, and most of them are pretty simple. You know, how many hits does a guy have? How many home runs does he have? What's his batting average, which is just how many hits does he get per plate appearances, or, or you know, things like that. Over the last decade or so, baseball stats have become much more complex uh, there's this phrase called sabermetrics that, that is used, and, or analytics is the, the phrase we hear a lot. And, and suddenly these statistics are much more uh, convoluted. Like I can tell you how to, how to figure up somebody's batting average or slugging percentage or just count the number of RBIs they have. I can't tell you how to calculate somebody's WAR, which stands for wins above replacement. Uh, what, what that means is, is say somebody like... Uh, you know, Paul Goldschmidt, the Cardinals' first baseman, will probably win the MVP this year. His war means that if you replaced him with just the average first baseman, the Cardinals would win like five less games than they've won. That's kind of what that statistic is supposed to explain. I have no idea how you calculate it. I have no idea what goes into it. And the statistics are fun, and as I've gotten a little older, I kind of have adapted to them a little bit more. My dad doesn't like them. My dad pushes back against them. He likes the big old numbers we used to see. If a pitcher has 20 wins, that means he had a great season. I'm like, well, not necessarily. He's like, well, how do you figure? And I said, well, take a couple years ago, for example, the Cardinals had a pitcher who he had won 16 games, but his ERA was like six. I said, that just means they bailed him out the whole time. They scored a ton of runs when he pitched, and somebody else who had an ERA of three had a, a worse record. They didn't give him any run support. He's like, oh, well, that's not how that works. Said, no, that's exactly how that works. It is this long conversation, right? Trying the old school versus the new school. And I like those numbers, but again, 
If I take somebody to a game and they're not familiar with baseball, I'm not going to sit there and try to figure that stuff out for them. I'm going to explain to them what a hit is, what a, what a strike in a ball is, why somebody's out when they're out, etc. I'm not going to say, hey, let me explain to you what FIP means, okay? Like fielding independent ERA, because sometimes the pitchers are better than the fielders around. I'm not going to go into that, right? We overcomplicate things a little bit. And we do this in life. And maybe you do this in life. In fact, I'll just ask you the question, how often do you, do you overcomplicate things? Something in your life, how often do you just overcomplicate it? That's something you can think about and chew on this week because we're going to specifically focus this today on how often do we overcomplicate church? How often do we overcomplicate what we do here? We overcomplicate church, we overcomplicate Jesus, we overcomplicate the gospel. How often do we do that? We are in week three of this series called Ripple Effect, uh, and today we're going to look in John chapter five, we'll, ju- we'll dive into it in just a moment, uh, at this healing that Jesus does. And the last couple of weeks, we've looked at these different signs in the gospel of John. If you're uh, visiting with us, or if, if you haven't been here the last couple of weeks, you're joining us online, we have uh, looked at the, the, the first two of the signs or the miracles in the gospel of John. Today, we're going to look at the third takes place in John chapter 5, and we'll just dive into the text because the first few verses really set this up. It says, sometime later, the the last thing in the text we read was what Brad talked about last week, the the healing of the nobleman's son. I don't know how much time has passed here, but it says, sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now, there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Uh, Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. Uh, One who had been there for, uh, I'm sorry, one who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. Okay, we're going to pause because that's the context that we need here. Tells us a lot. There's this pool. He's in Jerusalem. Uh, he has gone to Jerusalem for this festival. It could be Passover. Uh, it could be uh, it could be uh, the festival of, of, of Pentecost. We don't really know. John doesn't specify. But there are three major festivals in the Jewish culture that you would go to Jerusalem, typically for at least one of them, if not all three. But there it says there's this pool called Bethesda. There's a verse that might not be in your Bible. If you've got a newer translation, an NIV, uh, a New Living, uh, English Standard Version, something like that, you might notice something if you're reading it, especially here. You're not going to notice it on the screens. But if you're just reading it through the text, it jumps from verse 3 to verse 5. If you've got a King James, you're going to find a verse 4 in there. But there's an interesting little note here about that verse. And and I want to kind of take off my, my pastor hat for a minute, put on my Bible teacher hat for just a minute, and kind of explain why this is. There are some people who will swear by the King James because of moments like this. They'll say, well, in the newer translations, they leave verses out. No, what happened is the King James Bible was written in the early 1600s. In the 400 years that have passed, they've actually found and discovered older manuscripts of books of the Bible. And so so they find these, they verify that they're legitimate, and some of the verses aren't in those earlier manuscripts. What that tells us is most likely somebody, as, as, like a scribe as they were writing this, might have just put a little note to the side, like I do in my Bibles all the time. And then when somebody found that, they assumed that was part of the original scripture. 
And so when we get this, a lot of times in our Bibles, there will be a little, uh, like a footnote. You can go down there and it will tell you the earliest manuscripts don't include this. That's important, and here's why. Verse 4, if you were to read it, is not necessarily inspired scripture, but that doesn't mean it's not important. And so we read verse 4, and it tells us what the Jewish people believed about this pool called Bethesda. It says, from time to time, an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters. The first one into the pool after each such disturbance would be cured of whatever disease they had. That's an important detail to know. Not because I believe that it's true, I don't think Jesus believed that it's true, but because the Jewish people, especially those laying there by the pool who needed healing, did believe that it's true. So file that away because we're going to come back to that here in just a moment. Verse 6, when Jesus saw this man lying there uh, and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Is that not like maybe the dumbest question Jesus could ask in this situation? Okay, I mean, what, what, what does he think this guy wants? Uh, several years ago, Jennifer and I were <clears throat> back before we had, had moved. We were still in our hometown. Went into uh, Arby's to get dinner. You know, it's 6 o'clock or so, 7 o'clock. We go in there to, to get dinner. Uh, you know how a lot of fast food places anymore, you kind of enter the buildings on the side and like kind of snake through to go up to, the, to where you order your food. This is an older building. It's an older Arby's. It's, it's not very big. You walk in and like the, the counter is right there, just a few steps from the door. So it's like you walk in and boom, there you are. I'm one of these people that if I'm at a restaurant, I'm at a store, I don't ask for help. I wait for somebody to ask me if I need help. Like, that's just kind of my nature. I don't know why. I feel like that's your job. You know, ask me if, if there's something you can help me with. Uh, I shouldn't have to track you down kind of thing. But especially when I'm ordering food, I will just stand there until they acknowledge me. And I don't care how uncomfortable it gets. I will lock eye contact with this person. I will make it uncomfortable and awkward for them until they ask me. Well, this girl just looks at me. And it's probably a good 45 seconds, just eye to eye. And finally she goes, do you want to order food? I'm like, no, I need a new battery for my car. Like, why am I at Arby's at 6 o'clock in the evening? Of course I want to order food. I didn't say that. I thought that. But I'm like, why would you ask that question? If you could say, you know, do you know what you'd like to order? Or is there something I could help you with? Or are you ready to order? But it's just like, well, do you want food? Like, yeah, I want food. That's why I'm at a restaurant. Jesus asked this question to this guy, and I can only imagine what he's thinking. Like, yeah, I want to get well. Why do you think I'm laying by a pool that if I get in, it will heal me? Understand this with Jesus. He doesn't ask dumb questions. He doesn't ask pointless or obvious questions. Everything Jesus did and said was intentional. It's calculated. And here's why. I think sometimes God might put a silly or obvious question in front of us, not because he doesn't know what we want, but he wants to see how we respond. Parents, you ever do this? Like, like do you ever ask your kids a question and you already know what the answer is, but you just want to see how they respond? I make my kids ask me. My, my kids will want something. I make them actually verbalize what it is they want because I want to kind of see their tone and their attitude with it too. And I want to see if they know why they want it. I think sometimes God wants to see how we respond. 
Look how this guy responds, the invalid in verse 7. says, Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me get into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, somebody else goes in ahead of me. Again, go back to that verse 4 that's not in your, 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 your Bible, unless you've got a King James or it's in brackets. This is why he believes that. When that water's stirred, you've got to be the first one in or you're not going to get healed. This man, by answering the question that Jesus asked him, and he answers it honestly. A few things are obvious. Number one, he has no idea who he's talking to. He has no idea who Jesus is. To him, Jesus is just another, uh, you know, passerby, another bystander that's there. No different than anybody else around him. But two, it tells me he has no understanding of who his God is. To him, God is this impersonal being that, that heals based on basically who wins a contest. Who's the first one to get in the water? Who has earned it? The most. That's who this person's God is. One that you have to earn your way into blessings. It's a very impersonal God that this man is trying to figure out. And that tells us that his system of belief is broken. Because what it tells me is that his religion has gotten in the way of his understanding of his God. And we see this church way too often with ourselves. We see this way too often with the church, with the American church especially. Maybe with us here at times, I don't know. But we've seen it in so many churches. We let our way of doing things, our way of believing in things, get in the way of who God really is and who we need people to see that God really is. And when we do that, we block people's view. And those people who get their view blocked and their understanding blocked are much more likely to turn away from God, to resist God, to reject God, to, to just stop believing in God, period. But notice how Jesus replies to this man. Verse 8 says, Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. And at once the man was cured. He picked up his mat, and he walked. I love Jesus' response here, because I love what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't give him a lecture. He doesn't give him a lesson. He doesn't explain to him while he's wrong. He doesn't talk down to him for his lack of understanding. He just tells him to get up and walk. He doesn't, I'm assuming he doesn't reach out and touch the man's you know, broken body. He just tells him, get up and walk, and it says at once that he did. And notice, too, how John refers to him. He says the man was cured. To this point, he's called him the invalid. Now suddenly he's a person. He has an identity. We've said this kind of throughout this series, and that's kind of a theme throughout these signs, is that when Jesus shows up, he transforms people's lives. He doesn't just come and make things better. He makes things different. He he changes you, not just in the moment, but in everything to come in front of you. With just a simple breath, with just a thought, with just a word, This man's life is forever changed and transformed. And and that's basically the story of the the miracle, the story of the sign. And this is where the Gospel of John is different. If we're reading this in Matthew or Mark or Luke, we probably just go right on to the next miracle, right on to the next sign. But John always takes it a little bit further. I told you this back in in week one of this series. Because look what he writes next in the last part of verse 9. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. Uh Uh-oh. 
We can't do that. Not today. This is the Sabbath. And it says in verse 10, the Jewish leader said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. He is doing work on the Sabbath. Now, before we start getting on these Jewish leaders, okay, let's pause for just a moment here and let's talk about what the Sabbath is. Because the Sabbath isn't just a suggestion. It's a commandment. I mean, it's one of the Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter 20, it tells us to remember the Sabbath by keeping it holy. Okay? It's, I mean, it's not a suggestion. God tells us to take the Sabbath day. And I would dare say, I know I can say this about myself, but I would dare say for all of us in this room, that's probably the one commandment we aren't very good at keeping. Like, I'm pretty good at not murdering people, you know? I'm pretty good at not stealing things. I'm pretty good at not having any other gods above God, okay? I'm terrible at keeping the Sabbath. I'll just be honest with you. Why? Because I'm an American, and what do we value and prize? Busyness. Getting things done. Working. Does that mean you have to sit quietly on a chair during the Sabbath? No. But it means you should unplug on a regular basis, so you can connect better with God. That's what the Sabbath is all about. It's, it's interesting to me because it's the fourth commandment. You know what the first three are? They're connecting you with God. Don't have any other gods before me. Don't have any idols. Don't take my name in vain. They're your relationship with God. The last six, number five through ten, those are you connecting with other people. Don't murder. Don't steal. Don't uh, commit adultery. Don't covet what your neighbor has. Honor your father and mother, etc., etc. So where you connect with God and you connect with others, what connects those? The Sabbath. I've heard it said that the Sabbath is where heaven connects with earth. It's where God comes down to us so that we can be with him. So the Sabbath is important, and it was important to the Jewish people. It was what separated them from everybody else. It was what made them set apart, especially the pagan Roman society around them. But you have to understand where we are in the story. Again, the law has been given several thousand years ago, and most people don't carry a copy of the law with them. They have oral tradition. It's passed down from one generation to the next. And their oral tradition was actually pretty accurate, but over that amount of time, things start to get left open to interpretation. I mean, think about it like this. Let's say that I have uh, the, the law, and I want to pass this down to the church, so I go to Brad's office, and I tell Brad, all this. And Brad remembers it pretty well. And he takes it and he tells Tracy. And Tracy remembers most of it, you know, about as best as he can. He might get 90, 95% of it. He takes it to Ben and, and, and Ben gets about 90 to 95% of that. And he takes it to Phil and he gets, you see where this is going? Starts to snowball. What happens to that, that missing 5 to 10% that starts to grow and expound a little bit? You fill it in with your own guess or interpretation of how you want it to be. That's what's happened at this point in the story. Their own interpretation of the law has become more important than the law, and the law has become more important than what the law was ever intended to do, which was protect your relationship with God. The Sabbath is meant to protect your connection and relationship with God, but at this point, they are worshiping the Sabbath. Jesus has just gone in here and performed a miracle and all the Jewish people see as a violation. They see a rule that was broken. Their understanding of God 
really isn't any different than the man who needed healing. They worshiped a very impersonal God. You could say they worshiped the way that they worshiped. I think you take it a step further. They're worshiping their own methods. They're worshiping their own ministries. They're worshiping their own ideals. In other words, you say like this, they're worshiping their religion more than they're worshiping their God. And church, too often over the years, we've been guilty of doing the same thing. So what I want to do with this in, in the little bit of time we have left is look at this story. And with that process in mind, just make a couple of, of thoughts that we need to keep in mind, a couple of observations that we need to put into practice in our own lives so we can be the church that fulfills the mission Christ gave us to fulfill. Here's the first observation, that we can't confuse holiness with obedience. We can't confuse holiness with obedience. Now, I'll kind of, in a moment, mention where those two tie together. But obedience typically relates to religion. And religion at this point has become a bad word for so many people. We think about religion and we think about this rigid set of rules that has to be followed, this set of boundaries that are immovable and impersonal and that are just black and white. And you'll even hear people say, well, you know, Christianity is a relationship, it's not a religion. Well, yeah, there's some truth to that. But name me a successful, healthy relationship that doesn't have boundaries, that doesn't have some guidelines to it. Okay, when we think about rules and religion, we automatically think about legalism, which is you follow the letter of the law or else. This man's life was just completely, radically changed. And all people can see was that a rule was broken. And folks, when we do this in the church, when we put this same mindset to play in the church, what we're telling people basically is we want to see lives changed. We want to see Jesus transform hearts and minds and souls. We want to see people come to Christ and be baptized. We want to see our city set on fire for the gospel on our terms. So long as it's done this certain way. So long as we're in control. That's what we're telling people. And when we do that, we're adopting this mindset that so many churches have had over the course of time. Some churches still have. I've mentioned it before, that you need to believe and you need to behave before you can belong to us. You believe in Jesus, get rid of your life of sin, get rid of your, your junk, and then you can become part of our church. We'll welcome you into our community. I, I see churches like this still to this day on social media, you know, telling you to get your life in order before you become and belong. When you do that, what you're really saying is we don't want to deal with your messiness. We don't want to deal with your brokenness. It's like telling somebody they have to get in shape before they can join a gym. That's the purpose of the gym. You know, imagine if, if me, don't let this rugged physique fool you, if I walked into a gym one day and people just shunned me because you don't look like one of us. You don't, you're not built like one of us. No, what do I need? No, I need somebody when I go in there to show me how to do things, to help me, to encourage me, to, to be there for me. And, and we see this as the church, that we've got to be careful to not confuse holiness with obedience. Because that's not the approach Jesus took. Remember, in Mark chapter 2, he has just called Matthew the dirty, rotten, no-good tax collector. And he's gone to Matthew's house to 
Go to this meal where it's going to be more. Dirty, rotten, no good tax collectors. And what does he tell the Pharisees? It's not the healthy who need a doctor. It's the sick. How many of you, you're feeling perfectly well and you go to the ER going, just check me out. Something, something's wrong. And there's nothing wrong. No, Jesus says it's not the healthy who need a doctor, it's the sick. I haven't come to call the righteous, but the sinners. These people think they're defending God. In reality, they are defending their own way of doing things. They're defending their own systems, their own structures. They're defending their own ministries, what they get to lead, what they get to be a part of. They've made those more important than the people those ministries are intended to reach. They've made those more important than the people they're called to go out and, 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 and bring to Christ. Again, don't confuse holiness with obedience. Now, here's a disclaimer. Holiness requires obedience, but that doesn't mean they're the same thing. Okay, To be holy, yes, it requires a level of obedience, but holiness is a willing submission. It's a willing surrender to God. Here's the difference between the two. You might be saying, well, if you're saying that one requires the other, what's the difference? Obedience is about following orders. Holiness is about becoming more like Jesus. It's about sacrificing and surrendering those things that we might want to do, that the world tells us we can do, and maybe we should do. No, and Jesus says, no, you take up your cross and you follow me. That is what the difference between those two is. Holiness, it's moving away from activities that pull you deeper into the world and further away from Jesus. Again, it's a willing surrender, not a forced one. And here's the problem I think too many churches have fallen into over the course of time when it comes to holiness. There is not a cookie-cutter approach to this. Uh, yeah, yeah, Jesus is the only way to get to God. Believe in him, get baptized, surrender, and, and submit your life to him. But the walk with Christ looks a little different for all of us. And I think too many times churches throughout the course of history have forced everybody to walk the same steps. And that's what that legalistic path looks like. Take this step and then this step and then this step and do this in this order and this in that order. Wear this to church, don't wear that to church. Do this, don't do that. Instead of showing people, it's about making your heart pure before God. That's what Paul says in 2 Timothy. When he writes, in a large house, there are articles not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are for special purposes and some for common use. Those who cleanse themselves from the latter will be instruments for special purposes, made holy, useful to the master, and prepared to do any good work. Paul says that the goal is to become like the gold and silver, not just the wood and clay, but the wood and clay gets to be in the house to begin with. It gets to start there until it's purified, until it's cleansed, until it's made holy. Too often, church, we have kind of established what rules are the most important ones to follow, and we've defined that. And when we define that, sometimes we quit looking at the Bible to see where those rules should be. We quit looking at how Jesus interacted with people and we lock ourselves into our own systems and our own structures too much. And we need to avoid that. Again, the church should be a place that attracts the broken, the lonely, the hurting, the messy. It should attract those people here into this family, into this community. Instead of saying you've got to believe and behave first, it should go the other way around. 
We want you to belong to this community. And we want to help you believe in Jesus so that you can become more like him. That should be our, our, our attitude. That should be our philosophy because that's the attitude and the philosophy Jesus had. He called sinners to come to him and he gave them reason to believe and he showed them how to become more like him. Does that mean they all stayed the path? No, several, several fell away. Several quit following him at times because following him does get hard. But he didn't make it hard at the beginning. He taught them how to become more like him. That's holiness. Don't confuse holiness with obedience. Here's our second observation. Jesus is greater than any system we can build. He's greater than any system we can build. If there is one thing about churches all across this country, it's that we, we as church leaders, let me just kind of be open and honest with you here, we try really, really hard to do what we think is best at, at helping you all as the church become like Jesus. We, we really do. Are we perfect at it? Absolutely not. Do we try stuff that flops? Yes. Is there going to be stuff in the future we try that flops? Yes. We just, we're trying. The, the thing we have to keep in mind at all times as church leaders is that we can't make it all about what we build. And that's what too many times, too many churches lock into that and stick with that. And we ride with that. There's been an alarming number over the last decade that church attendance has just been in continual decline. It's easy to point to COVID two years ago and say, well, before COVID, you know, we had this and now we have this. Church attendance has been in decline for a decade, maybe more. Well before COVID, COVID just exposed it for us. What we have seen, really the number one reason why, is that once upon a time, maybe a generation ago, church was at the center of the average American family, the average American household. Now it's on the periphery, it's just part of what we do. And even the average church attender, it's just something else on your calendar. Going along with, uh, you know, weekend activities, with weekend getaways, church is just another thing that we have on our calendar. But what COVID really exposed, and the few years before that we're starting to expose, was why people are starting to push it further and further away, and why some people have just quit coming altogether. And the number one overall reason, the number one overall response people were, were asked when they were asked, why aren't you uh, attending church anymore, was they said, I don't think church is relevant in my life anymore. And that wasn't about like, oh, well, okay, we need to change things so we can become, you know, a little more cool, a little more relevant, you know, a little more, that's not quite what they meant. They meant it doesn't have a purpose in my life anymore. And when they were asked to break that down, they gave a few reasons. And man, these reasons are just like sobering. For me as a pastor, as a church leader, as somebody who's been in church my entire life, one of the number one reasons why people said church was no longer relevant in their lives, they said that church leaders and church people are often hypocritical and vague. You know why they said that? Because too often church leaders and church people are too hypocritical and vague. We've shown them that. We've been that to them. Or, or, or this one, they said that, that, that people like them weren't allowed to ask hard questions or be critical in church. They were told, you just need to have faith. You know why they said that? Because we told them, you're not allowed to ask those questions. Just have faith. Don't be so critical. 
Or, or they would say that they didn't feel welcome. They felt judged when they walked in the door, like they didn't belong to the club. Any guesses why they said that? Because we made them feel that way. And I can tell you this, I have been in several churches in my life, even just in the last few years, churches of less than 100. I, I preached one summer at a church that had 20 people in it. I've been at a church that had 30,000 people in it. All of these different sizes of churches, you're going to find some that are really good at welcoming people. And you're going to find some that just say, oh, hi. And that's about it. And you never know what that person who walks through the door might be going through and dealing with. And if you just brush them off, guess what? You're making them feel judged. You're looking like we're hypocritical. You're making them think they can't ask questions and they should just have faith. Because church, we have done this so, so many times. For all the good the church has done, we have hurt a lot of people just simply by not paying enough attention. By simply being too absorbed with ourselves. And I don't think we've done it on purpose. I, I really don't. I think we've just lost sight of what we need to have sight of. We've, we've, again, we're focusing too much on what we have built, what we want to do, and how we want to do it, that we've lost sight of who we're actually here to help. And let me just say something to you. If you're here today, if you're online watching, if you've been hurt by the church, specifically in one of those ways I just mentioned, I'm sorry. I mean, from the bottom of my heart, I am sorry. That, that when I say we, I don't necessarily mean crossroads, but we as a church have, have hurt you. That another church has hurt you. And I wish I could erase that for, from you. I wish that I could take that pain away and that hurt away. But let me just remind you that if you're here today or if you're watching online, Jesus loves you. He loves you far better than we ever can, despite our best efforts. And he values you and he treasures you. And he went to the cross for you, despite, despite what you may have done to him. Jesus loves you just the way you are, but he loves you too much to leave you that way. He wants to transform your life. And I apologize if we have a, as a church have gotten in the way of that. We've stopped you from being able to be transformed by him. Because church, too often, again, even though we're not trying to do this, we have simply lost sight of what we are called to do. Jesus made it very, very clear to us. Some of the last words he uttered before he ascended back into heaven, he told his disciples to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You look at this whole phrase here, and the imperative, if you look in the Greek, the imperative verb is make disciples. That's the most important part of this entire phrase, make disciples. How? We go. We get involved. We get invested. It says all nations. Some of you may never go to another country in the name of, of, of God. But how many times are you going to that house down the street with those people who are a little different than you? How many times are you getting invested with, with maybe uh, parents, with the, the parents of your, your kids' friends who don't believe like you believe? Or maybe that person at work that gives you grief at times. How many times are you taking them to lunch, spending time with them? That's who we're called to, to go reach. 
Because Jesus also told us in John chapter 20, after he had resurrected, that as the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. How was Jesus sent? He told us three different times in the Gospels that he came, the Son of Man came, I came to bring life to the full, to serve others, to seek and save the lost. So church, let me ask you, are we doing that? Are we going and making disciples? Are we serving others? Are we bringing life to the full? Are we seeking and saving the lost? Because if we are not, let's be honest, we are not being a church. We're just being a group of people who tend to get along with each other and believe the same things. That's what we are called to do. So so here's kind of my, my, my statement and my challenge with this today. This church... It should exist to help your walk with Christ, not the other way around. Your walk with Christ isn't important to protect this church. We as a church should exist to protect your walk with Christ. And I'll just throw this out there to you all. As a pastor, as one of the leaders here, call me out on this. If I get to a point where this is all about me and I'm shifting things too much, man, call me out on this because I don't want to get there but I also know my own nature. And that's something that could easily happen. So call me on that. Thankfully, we've got a good staff and we've got great elders and we've got great ministry team leaders who are focused on the gospel and we're focused on reaching people. And I think we do a pretty good job of keeping each other accountable for this. Because again, the church should exist to help you out. You probably heard it said the church should be a hospital for sinners on a country club for the saints. That's exactly what I want us to be. That's exactly who we are supposed to be. And if that's you today, if if you're visiting, if you're here, you're trying Jesus out, you're trying to figure out what this is all about, let me just tell you, you do not have to have this all figured out. I certainly don't. The rest of us don't either. So come join us (laughs) as we try to figure some things out together. Uh, To that end, we've got this connection card we put in your bulletin every week. And I know if you're here on a regular basis, it's easy to kind of gloss past this. There's a lot of reasons we have this just to get to know you better, number one. You can put prayer requests on this, especially if you want it to just stay with us as a staff. But up here on the top of the back, there's a bunch of check boxes. And if you're trying to figure things out, you say, Kurt, man, I've I've got so many questions. Because I don't know what all this means. I don't know what it means when we talk about baptism or we talk about communion or we talk about, I, I don't know what these things mean. Then check those first couple boxes and drop this in the offering box and I'll get this card in a couple of days. Or if you say, I'm just alone, I need community around me, then check the one that says you want to get interested in Bible studies and small groups and that'll go to our, our small groups team. Or it'll go maybe to one of our ministry teams and you can serve with them. Not so we can use you for labor. No, because you can get plugged in. And you can serve with people who genuinely enjoy being together when they serve together. Our role as a church is to help you become more like Jesus. And yes, we've got things that we have to follow. We have commandments that we have to follow. We have the way he's told us to live. I mean, sin is still sin. We're not going to gloss over sin. But our goal is to help you transform or help you to be transformed. We can't do it. (laughs) To help you to 
Come to Jesus so that he can transform and change your life. So so here's kind of what I want to leave you with, just kind of a thought. It's not really a, a takeaway today so much, but just kind of this thought that Jesus doesn't conform to our rules and to our boxes. He doesn't call us to make him like us. He calls us to make ourselves like him. It was Dallas Willard who once said that God created mankind in his own image and man was so generous he returned the favor. In church, we want to make sure we're not doing that. Let's focus on Jesus, on the transforming power that he offers, and let's help others do the same. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for your son. We're so grateful that he came and gave his life for us so that we could give our lives to him. We could be transformed by him. God, and I know it's so easy for us to get locked into what is comfortable for us, what we like. It's so easy for us to just get stuck in the way we do things because this is the way we do things. This is the way we believe. God, this is what I think is right and what I think is wrong and and everything else falls into that. God, I pray that we would always be focused on you and you alone. God, I pray today if anybody has been hurt by the church, has been hurt by the rigidity that we have put into place, God, you would open their hearts to you and that we as a church, as your church, would be able to walk alongside them to help them come back to you, to help them come be changed and transformed and show them your love. God, we pray this today in your name. Amen. We're going to step into a time of communion. I'm always struck by by the thought of communion and, and where it started from, where it comes from. So on the last night that Jesus was alive, he was uh, having Passover meal with his disciples. And when they had Passover meal,